This episode is sponsored by Anchor.fm. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. So let me explain. Basically, it's free. Secondly, there's creation tools that allow you to record and also edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. And after which, Anchor will automatically distribute your podcast for you. So it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other platforms. You can also make money from your podcast with literally no minimum listenership. So it's everything you basically need in a podcast in one place. So go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started today. The number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is... Please note, the new number is... So, welcome to the Naked Island Park. Yes. <laughs> so yes, welcome to the Naked Island podcast. Um, we have Creon here with us. Uh, Creon Levitt has been a scientist in NASA for more than 30 years and also is working as a chief technologist at uh, Planet Labs at the moment. Um, he's fairly, fairly, very well knowledgeable and a person I've looked up to for some time. And uh, I'm glad that I can have a conversation with you. I hope you're doing well tonight. Um, so yes, I wanted to ask you so many questions about uh, how things in space works or how you operate objects in space, being a scientist um, and being in the science world for so long, which is so, so, so fascinating. Um, so I was but like- first, first, wait a minute. Can I ask you a question? Yes, of course. How do we know each other? Clubhouse. <laughs> yes, we oh, the clubhouse. The new, new meeting place. Excellent. Well, great. It's been it's been a pleasure hanging out with you on Clubhouse. And, uh, um, so going back to orbital mechanics and the world of NASA and how science and uh, the space uh, aspect or the space aspect of uh, science in general works today. Um, I, I saw that you've worked more than 30 years in NASA Ames. And I was wondering, like, throughout working all those years, what changes in, you know, in technological parts or aspects have you seen? Um, uh, like the ones uh, that you talked about saying that, you know, there's new kind of satellites like nanosatellites, which seem to be better than the ones which are larger because of the accuracy of the way they can, you know, sometimes totally go into the orbit within, uh, without any much trouble as, as uh, compared to maybe the larger ones. And, and they're just more precise maybe. So I was wondering maybe, you know, in the last 30 years, um, or maybe, you know, these, all these years of working in NASA and now at Planet uh, Labs, what changes have you seen in, in terms of satellite production? And like in terms of size and, and whether these smaller ones are actually much better now? Oh, if you're talking about what changes did I see in technology in general in my career at NASA, I, you know, I don't mean to sound uh, ridiculous, but I saw it all. Like when I got there, there was no internet really, and there was no, it's the very beginning of the uh, small computers revolution, such like that. Here we are today. So, that's a whole story in and of itself, like what it was like to be inside the government or technology organization when all these things happened. There's ARPANET, the internet, the web. But in terms of satellites, which is what you were mostly focusing on, in my world, that happened somewhat later. 
maybe my last seven years or so at NASA, which would have been, say, um, 2008, 2015. Um, and um, one of the many things that was happening at that time was NanoSat revolution, if you will, I don't know, revolution might be too pompous, but certainly a change, a new direction. Um, and now, first of all, their nanosats are smaller. It doesn't necessarily, they're not more precise necessarily. There's nothing about their orbits that's different from the large satellite. That's not what's going on. The, of nanosatellites is if you can make a satellite that's small, light, and cheap, and cheap because it's small and light, it's inexpensive to launch, then you launch a lot more of them with the same money. And so you can have a lot more of them in orbit with the same amount of money that you have one big satellite in orbit. And then when you have a lot of small satellites in orbit, you might be able to do new things. That a single large satellite couldn't do. Likewise, a single large satellite can possibly do, do things that small satellites can't do. So, because in the same time period, we've had the advances in computer technology, Moore's Law, and all this kind of thing, you can pack a lot more into a you know, small package now than you could. 20 years ago. So you could imagine that satellites, just like any other kind of technology, can be more powerful and smaller. But it's not that simple because the business that we are in, at Planet Labs, and the business a lot of other satellite technology companies and organizations, Earth observation that takes telescopes. And telescopes have been around a lot longer than microelectronics. And telescopes have uh, somewhat matured. And so there are laws of physics that constrain how sharply a telescope can image the Earth or anything else. And that basically is determined, the sharpness, the resolution that can be imaged is determined by the size of the telescope. So if you're in a given orbit, you're given distance above the Earth, what can you see? What details can you see? That's determined primarily by the size of the telescope. So if you make a satellite smaller and smaller and smaller, you have to make the telescope in a smaller and smaller, and then it can see less and less less and less resolution. Smaller telescopes have less resolution. That's why those big telescopes at the big observatories on the ground, you know, the large observatories that look up at the stars at night, why are they so huge? A lot of people try and tell you that, that the telescopes are so huge so they can gather a lot of light and see dim objects. That's not really true. I mean, that's true, but it's not the real story because if you have a dim object that you're looking at, you can just do a very long exposure. You can expose for many hours over the course of one night, and then you can expose many hours the next night. You can have exposures that are hundreds of hours long 
to gather a lot of light. That's not why the telescopes are so big, gather light. They're so big because the bigger you make the telescope, the higher the resolution can be and the more detail you can see. So just like we make telescopes on the ground bigger and bigger and bigger to see higher resolution, we make telescopes in space bigger and bigger and bigger to see higher resolution. But big telescopes in space are very expensive. And so one of the things that happened at NASA Ames and elsewhere in, say, the uh, 2007-2012 timeframe was people were thinking, well, what can we actually pack into a satellite that's like the size of a loaf of bread? And if we put the biggest telescope that we can in there, and we pack in enough electronics around it, computers, right? Powerful, even if they're small, what can we make? And what we determined was we could probably make something that's pretty good, even if it was just a small satellite the size of a loaf of bread. And even if it only costs, you know, one one thousandth as much as, an, as a big satellite, we could put a pack of fair bit capability into the small satellite, even though we had a relatively small telescope. And then maybe we could launch hundreds of these things. And maybe we could have a lot of data coming down in parallel, imaging the whole Earth every day. And that was the sort of first mission of Planet Labs. And it was a mission that we took a while, but we executed it. And we've launched many hundreds of small satellites, nanosatellites in orbit, and we've launched a fair number of larger satellites as well with bigger telescopes for higher resolution. And um, we've become a company that's one of the premier providers of satellite image data to all sorts of people in the world. All kinds of people use these data. Anyway, that was the long answer, but um, it's a big question. Yeah, no, it makes all the sense. So, but it's still very interesting that even though we try to make uh, technology or objects in general today that are very, very small or very accessible or mini miniature in essence, that they do not always tend to be that precise. As you were saying, was the case of you know telescopes versus these small nanosats that they're not maybe that precise. Um, so I was wondering, you know, in terms of, as you were saying, you know, there's improvements in uh, imaging and then how things are being mapped out uh, on Earth and data is being collected and then projected onto either clients or cyberspace in general. I was wondering how mature or how, you know, to your be be best ability or to your knowledge is precise is this technology today in 2021. That, that we're able to whatever um, mapping systems that we have either on the cyberspace through Google or any other um, you know, network site that we try to access these available maps, how precise or how good it is now and, and, how do, and what expectations do you have in future with you know, this, of course, emergence of smaller objects get precise to some, some extent, more accessibility, just more um, everything that you human would want to get is that uh, the fact is that they are getting it. And so now when we follow this uh, chain of thought, you have so much accessibility. So what do you think that also means for human physiology and, 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 and biology in general, because it would also be detrimental 
to to how humans function. Um, Wait, so what, what, would be, what would be what would be detrimental to how humans function? Uh, the, this increased sense of accessibility and 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 more uh, access to technology that we become so immersed in the technology itself that we forget uh, the normal functionings of, of of our own extreme you know immediate external reality or environment that we're so you know getting used to this technology now and and because the technology is getting so better that it fits all of our needs that there's maybe a chance either we're headed towards transhumanism or some sort of you know physical detrimental effects on human physiology in general so it's kind of a long uh, chain question related to space and then you know becomes philosophical but it's it's a chain of thought i suppose yes it's a long chain question but that's okay i like it um the there's a lot of details in mapping systems so that's a big business mapping systems. Google Maps, Google Earth is one component. A lot of different companies that mapping products, satellite images, they use images from airplanes, they use all kinds of other data, roadmaps, you name it, right? So geolocation, geo uh, intelligence, big business, lots of different players where Planet Labs finds its one of its main niches is in what we call high temporal resolution. We are imaging the Earth many times. So if you go to Google Maps and you look at wherever, you're probably going to see something from the last year. We image the entire surface of the earth, the land, coastal island areas every day. So we get updated images every day. So when you look at our data, you get images, hundreds of thousands, stacks deep every day, what's changing. And um, that, is of course complicated because a lot of the time it's cloudy, right? So we may image the earth every day, but some places are cloudy a lot of the time. Some places are not cloudy a lot of the time. Most places are cloudy about half the time. So that's interesting. But nevertheless, there's this time dimension, which is pretty important, at least to some people. It might not be important to you who just want to see a map where you're going. You might not even care to actually see an image. You might just want a map of line one. But obviously, where are you? I'm in Tel Aviv at the moment. Yeah, so in Tel Aviv, like things are changing day to day, right? There's like a lot of interest in what's going on nearby and right there. And, and so, um, like the Israeli Ministry of Defense and other people are very interested in up to date images. So, there's lots of customers besides. Google Maps, you know, who are very uh, interested in up-to-date imagery. Farmers are very interested in getting an image of their fields every day, or at least every week, clouds permitting. Images in many different spectral channels so that they can know about 
things like chlorophyll, water. It's important to have up-to-date information if you're doing large-scale agriculture and perhaps even small-scale Now, this brings us into your questions of more philosophical nature about whether these kinds of technologies bring us more in touch with nature and our surroundings and our food system and our health, or whether they divorce us from it. And I think that perhaps in comparison to some other technologies, uh, Earth imaging arguably brings us more closely in touch with nature and our ecology and ourselves. So virtual reality, simulations, games, and media entertainment might separate us from our environment and from nature and even from each other and even from ourselves. However, imaging the earth is a pretty direct way of knowing where you are and who you are and, and how you fit in, how you connect, and how everything's connected. So I kind of don't think that satellite imaging of the earth is a technology that is going to push us farther apart from nature and farther and ruin our physiology and all this stuff. I kind of think it's the other way around. I think the more we are connected to our planet and the more we are connected to our surroundings, the better off we are. It'll make uh, ecology more resilient. It'll put us more in touch with nature. It'll make uh, food systems more secure. It'll, uh, anyway, the, our company, Planet Labs, is, is really primarily devoted to making life on Earth better by using space technology. And the central aspect of that commitment is biodiversity, food security, regenerative agriculture, and these sorts of things. So unlike a lot of other technology, Earth imaging is actually a way that we're using space and technology to connect us back to nature. There are many ways to connect to nature, but this is one way to use high tech to connect to nature. It seems like um, knowledge is the ultimate power, as people say, so that we collect as much as knowledge as po possible throughout our lives, and then we reach, you know, this some sort of um, stage of self actualization, if we ever make it um, to that level of uh, knowledge accessibility. And it seems like what happens with um, uh, gaining more data in terms of even mapping is that we're constantly utilizing everything around us. And, and so now that we have this cognitive architecture of all the knowledge that we have, um, it seems as if uh, in future, if we, if we continue, uh, you know, maybe de delving into this knowledge, you know, uh, and, and, and professing it over everything else where it seems to be, um, maybe we're exhausting so much and maybe that's why we're, you know, as humans tended to uh, go more towards 
developing technology which tends to access things. So, you know, I, I the point that I'm trying to maybe get at is like, I, I am observing that the technology uh, has of course matured um, and, and it has its own uh, effects uh, of, of it being a particular mature technology. And so what it seems to me uh, is happening with, uh, you know, mapping or uh, any of the other areas, uh, maybe apart from cyberspace with Google and others are, that we're, we're trying to map out the exact structure of the, uh, the way the entire universe works. But it seems that there's always something metaphysical left. So what about you know the the precision of, of predicting process of, uh, processing systems in our um, natural environment? Like when we are mapping, you know how a particular uh, climate is going to uh, you know surface out, or how a particular um, um, area or particular country looks at a certain uh, distance from a certain planet or a certain angle at the orbit. And, and all of these things, how precise, even due to, you know, because we as humans and living systems are autopoetic in nature, that we're self-manifesting and self-generating. It's a concept by uh, Francisco Varela, who is a Chilean, uh, no, I'm sorry. I know. Yes, yes. So as you know, as autopoetic living systems, I often get into these thought trajectories, thinking that, oh, if we do have access to this precise mapping, you know, how do we encounter uh, these predictive processing systems where we don't know because everything that we know is 50% true and could be uncertain at, um, <clears throat> I guess, at a given present moment. So I was wondering, you know, like as autopoetic uh, living systems, uh, how uh, you as scientists are able to predict every time correctly, or maybe, you know, 80% right, when you use these systems uh, to map out structures um, and, and at large. If you don't mind me asking, how do you know about Francisco Varela? That's kind of a strange thing for someone as young as you to know about. Would you mind explaining to me how you came to know Varela's work? Yeah, of course. Um, so I remember encountering his work maybe a year ago um, on YouTube. So what I tend to do is I, I would often like listen to some German idealist uh, lectures on Heidegger or Carnap or something. And these lectures tend to be almost two hours long. And so I would go through these uh, videos and I would encounter thinkers uh, through cyberspace mostly. And, and I remember once encountering this video clip of him um, speaking about life, but most importantly about phenomenology and neurophenomenology and the emergence of how this science came into being and, and how he was, you know, closely related to uh, Humberto Maturana, the Chilean biologist, and they came together and created Artipoiesis as kind of the main work. And I really, really enjoy listening to him speak in that particular video. And after that, I just jumped into his work about- So he has like, there are lectures of Perez on YouTube? There, there. So there's uh, clips available. Interesting. So yeah, that, that was the initial encounter. And then I just went into his uh, work about autopoiesis in general. And it kind of became really, really um, uh, like kind of core of what I think about these, uh, these days, like, oh, that we are living systems and that we are, you know, self-generating. And so, you know, that's why I asked you that kind of, you know, long chain question that, uh, you know, we are moving so much towards technology 
that uh, we as you know we are autopoetic beings and we are unpredictable but predictable in nature that there's this mystery behind our own existence and so when we use you know these technologies uh, of, of you know sudden imaging let's say versus you know some sort of predictive imaging where we're you know recording a certain uh, um, situation going on for time period and of course we're able to point out or predict you know, based on the data collected. And, and then there's, you know, sudden imaging, like maybe a volcano erupted that was not expected. And now we have uh, to, to mark that, but that's a sudden emergence. So I was wondering how technology and imaging systems, you know, kind of fix into this kind of uh, question of, of mystery, of this uh, predictive mystery. It depends on the level in which you look. One way to look at it is time scales. Right, daily, weekly, seasonally, annually, and longer scales. If we are looking to understand the Earth, there are some satellite imaging systems which have a long heritage and there's been a great deal of effort put into the. The Landsat system run by NASA for many decades has tried very carefully as they made more and better satellites to cross calibrate these data collections to one another so that they can make a record of about 50 years or so of what's going on on the Earth. This is important to look at whole earth system, whole ecology, whole planet. Our company, Planet Labs, we've only been around like 10 years. We've only been really going full bore for less than that. We're more like seasonal, looking at seasonal stuff. Predictions are important, particularly in today's world of futures markets and optimization. We're pivoting more at our company towards trying to support regenerative practices. So when you talk about autopoiesis and the systems approach, Varela and people like that, we are trying to become consistent with that. We wish to enliven the Earth system. We wish to enhance regeneration and diversity. It's a delicate dance trying to be a commercially successful company and do good for the world. But we are attempting to thread the needle, as they say. Um, we, do, we want to do our part to understand the whole Earth ecology as an autopoetic system. people more in touch with it. So 
we're just at the beginning. I don't know exactly how it's it's going to work out, but we are now dispersing and making available our data to all sorts of universities and researchers and scientists. I think there's a paper published every day now that uses data from Planet Labs. And, you know, we're not the sum total of all Earth observation. Satellites is amazing stuff that's done by NASA and the European Space Agency and other government agencies and other commercial providers. We are trying to collectively create a sensor web that keeps us informed about the operation of you know our spaceship Earth. And um, just trying to figure this stuff out. So if you have anything you can think of, any of you people out there who want to do help, who want to join the fun, please do. No, it's definitely uh, very, very interesting. I often think, you know, um, you know, maybe it is the popularization of science that has, you know, kind of also helped the trajectory of progress in terms of what NASA or any other, you know, science uh, scientists or, or individuals have achieved um, throughout their lives. Um, it, it seems like there's a very, very popular, um, very strong sense of popularization uh, when it comes to, uh, you know, physics or theoretical physics or, or space or how space works. We have so many, you know, contemporary thinkers. Uh, on top of the head, I can think of Brian Greene, who would often talk about science and, and theoretical physics concepts and, and, and in a very uh, composed way to be able to explain it to uh, X amount of audiences. Um, and I was wondering with this, you know, popularization of, uh, continued popularization of science, I feel like it has always been uh, popularized, at least the space aspects of it, because it has always been very fascinating for general population to look at, oh, how does the space work? Or what, are the, what is this thing that I'm watching on my TV that seems very metaphysical? So it, it seems to me uh, fair to ask this question, like, do you think this popularization or this, this, uh, this fascination that humans tend to have with this, you know, mystical, mysterious unknown uh, that kind of, you know, uh, drives our human eyes towards the space, because it seems to be the archetype of it. So uh, like, to what extent do you think, you know, this, this popularization has actually helped uh, uh, science or it has actually put some sort of pressure on it for it to be more precise all the time, for it to be not that free, but, but more uh, to the point and, 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 and just precise in general in terms of vast information that it tends to produce. I think it's been a good thing. I mean, even when I was a child, I was programmed to look space as an important piece of future art, cultural development, and it's continued to evolve. 
I think that overall, it's been a very good thing. People are getting, people get interested in science for various reasons. Space is one reason. There are many reasons. One interesting thing about being where I am at Planet Labs, I and at NASA before that, you know, I might have come there for space reasons. Other people came there for biology and ecology and science reasons. Other people might have come there for even political reasons. We all mix together and find common ground. This is wonderful. And now it's happening at an even more global accelerating scale, the internet, and with cyberspace, as you called it. This is a great thing that's happening, all this weaving together of all this data and all this knowledge and all these people's interests. Um, it's an exciting, it's getting more and more exciting. We have more and more information. We are creating a sensor web around the planet to understand things. And I have to say, in contrast to a lot of my contemporaries, I am quite optimistic. I think that things are good. I think that we have a lot of, you know, in spite of all the uh, concerns about climate change, loss of biodiversity, similar matters, we actually have within our reach solutions. We have within our reach the technologies and what we have what we need. So it's a great thing to be in this position as a species, as a planetary culture. We are able, if we choose to, to make the right moves and make the world a much better place. This is not limited, of course, to satellites and remote sensing and ecology and agriculture and all that stuff, although that's where we focus. It's true across the board. So would it be fair to ask that you're more optimistic about, let's say, the emergence of artificial um, super intelligence or the, the transhumanist phenomena actually occurring in, in the near future? because you have a, a, an optimistic ideal towards the world. A little bit of a stretch. I mean, I was talking about that it's within our grasp as humans to make the right moves and uh, create uh, sustainable, regenerative, healthy patterns on the planet, correct? our mistakes, 
learn from our errors and make things much more beautiful than they already are, which is quite beautiful, actually, in many ways. I'm here in the desert in California. It seems like a harsh place, I get it. Night, go out in the moon is bright, frogs, and birds, and crickets are all chirping. There's just all this life. So, got a pretty good thing going on here. I don't know if you get out much in the desert out there, but even in the desert, this beautiful symphony of life. And just need to pay attention. And look and listen. Ourselves and with our space systems and all these other things. Nature will show us the way. Okay. Super intelligence, AGI, all that stuff. Maybe. I do think that, like any other technology, well, it's a two edged sword and it can go different ways. And the important thing is for us to try and maintain some clarity and some honesty about our goals along the way. <clears throat> so transhumanism, superintelligence, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't, time frame unclear, but we better get clear about the basics. We better get clear about what kind of a world we want, what kind of a culture we wish to create. That's what's important. All kinds of technical surprises. I think that AGI and superintelligence and transhumanism might happen more slowly than a lot of my friends and colleagues suspect, and other things might happen more quickly than we suspect. But it's important to keep our eyes on the. It's important to keep our our eyes on the prize. It's important to know what is the type of world. What is the feeling we wish to instill in others ourselves. If we can get that straight, then uh, we can keep the technology on track. Any of these technologies, even either the ones that are currently in play, like we've been talking about satellites and space and that, or the speculative ones like AGI. So then any of these technologies can take us in a whole range of directions the important thing is to keep clear about what are the desired directions. 
Yeah, it, I think it is very fascinating how he, uh, this, this question of how human pot potential kind of interacts with the functioning of the world in the sense that we tend to create uh, models and functions and structures. But at the same time, we can ask these questions, to what extent do humans have power or influence or an effect over technology as opposed to technology having an effect on humans? That's where these ethical questions about AGI and, and speculative uh, negative uh, uh, comments about the emergence of ASI having detrimental effects on human life come in. Um, and, and I was wondering, I mean, I need to interrupt you. What is ASI? Uh, artificial superintelligence. Um, yeah, Nick Bostrom was, uh, is an Oxford philosopher. He comes from ASI. Uh, so uh, ASI would be the super intelligent being uh, entity, artificial entity, would, which would surpass the human reasoning uh, component level. So achieving some sort of super intelligence, which is beyond human capacity or beyond reach. So that is the major AI fear, uh, but, but we still don't even have an AGI, which properly works, which properly functions. So that's a far east question. What I was trying to get at is like we, we try to imagine things from this universe, but when we look into a physicist's mind, there's questions like, oh, is this the only reality? So I was wondering, like, from, from your experience in, in working in the world of science so far and, and, and learning so much knowledge continuously, what have you thought of this reality? And, and as opposed to, do you think this is the only reality we have? Or do you think there's, of course, possibilities of string theory being true or, you know, different realities being true? I think there's a couple of different questions there. There's what's possible and what's actual and what we perceive. I think we only perceive a subset of what is actual and what's actual is only a subset It's possible. What's possible is interesting to talk about and I'm more interested in the relationship between what's actual and what we perceive just becomes very narrow cross-section what's actual. So yeah, I think that we, I'm not gonna worry about string theory and all the possible universes. So out of scope, underneath out of scope. But I nevertheless, continually impressed by the idea that we are quite limited in our perceptual scope. And what we think of that is real is pretty, uh, it's like astronomically restrictive. It's just tiny compared to what's actually. So like, look, let's, let's take it down to earth here. With us, you're in your room, in my room. You have this model of the world, these walls, and this some kind of world outside, and you have this strange little tunnel connecting us through space and time. Right now, while we're talking, screens. It's a pretty simple model, actually. It's a it's a little simulation. It's not what's actually going on. What's actually going on is vastly more 
complicated. You and I both know this. Like there's people flying around, having sex, and fighting, and you know everything's going on. Like billions of people are doing stuff right now at this very moment. The actual world is so much more vast than our little simulation that we are living in. You and I, right here, right now, and and then even all these people, you know, they're not seeing ultraviolet and X-ray and quantum non-locality and all this stuff that's really going on in this universe. So we are only aware of the tiny, tiny fraction of what's actually going on, even collectively aware of it. So I'm not quite sure if you were asking a question or what, but I just wanted to say that. But I think that it's important to be a little bit humble about this. Oh, technology, AGI, you know, we tend to think we're creating gods. So that makes us gods because we're to create gods. Like, get a handle on things, folks. We don't have even the faintest clue what's actually going on. It's very true indeed. It makes me think of how, you know, perception, it, it all comes down to um, a working theory of perception that every subjective entity has across the universe. Everyone has their own, own, own perception of how their own sensory modalities sell them. So they would, the sensory modalities would code in information and data. And upon that data, we would predict um, certain things inside our own human mind and physiology in general. So it is very interesting that we, we, we rely on our senses. And that is something that, you know, uh, a philosopher called Descartes would say that, you know, we rely on our senses where senses are deceiving. Hence this uh, question of perception uh, and then how we actually perceive things. Um, there was a French existentialist called Jean-Paul uh, Jean Sartre, and he would often uh, talk about different theories of perception. And the way he would uh, often try to define this whole uh, idea of perception is that we look at we look at an object, let's say an object X, and our perception of it is is, is perception. But when 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 we come on to the object itself, the mind tries to take all the constituent part of this object and puts it together. So it is in fact the imagination within our uh, psychical mind uh, that takes over perception to prove uh, you know the reality to us to to a certain extent. So there's uh, obviously a confluence between ideas based on senses that senses. Are, are, are true and hence tell us the true um, modalities of our environment, or it is our mind that constructs reality. So these are two ways of perceiving, you know, kind of the universe. Maybe the one more based on constructivist and, and, and senses and biological in nature, the other more uh, maybe panpsychist in nature that everything comes down to mind. So I was wondering what kind of philosophy would you prescribe to when, when you perceive uh, reality? I'm not a philosopher, really. I have no training. I have no depth of knowledge. I, you probably read more widely than I have in philosophy, even though you are probably about half my age, I guess. Um, and um, I'm quite humbled by people such as yourself and some of the others who appeared on your 
podcasts who are really, I think, philosophically quite sophisticated, well-read, well-spoken, innovative. I'm not sure I have much to add other than what I was, other than to elaborate on what I was saying previously, which is that we really only are, I think, aware of a tiny fraction, a minuscule cross-section is not even the right word. It's just like infinitesimal subsample that's actually going on. Um, and I think that's important. I think to remember that the, uh, the true nature of what is, is so vast. And even though our minds are incredible and incredibly vast, the overmind, if you will, is so much vaster. I think the one thing I would say philosophically that I might have to add, and it's just an intuition perhaps, is that the connection between the individual minds and what I guess I will call the overmind, like the, the universal consciousness, that connection, that relationship, uh, that's something that maybe we should start thinking about. I'm not sure how exactly how that relates to your uh, descriptions of Sartre's descriptions of different ways, the panpsychist way, which is the other way, but I think there's something really deep going on. All these individual consciousnesses, this possible universal consciousness, let's, let's study that relationship or at least speculate about it. Because um, my subjective experience leads me to believe that uh, there might be more there under the surface than traditional Western Enlightenment philosophy leads us to believe. It's a wonderful thing, but let's not think it's the only thing. Sure, sure. It definitely is a question of intuition, as you were saying, because we tend to have this thing called a priori knowledge that we, we tend to collect data, but it is somewhat based on the quote-unquote will of the person, which is a subjective thing and a very uh, a non-objective thing, hence, henceforth. So it seems as if, you know, this, this whole aspect of intuition has always been very puzz puzzling to humans because we seem to know, even though we don't know where the metaphysics kind of comes in. Um, and it, it is always very interesting to question uh, the legitimacy of, of your own intuition or just a, a compared across a, a particular set of people. Um, so it's, it's just always very, very interesting to me, uh, for me to even try to conceptualize exactly how uh, a framework like intuition might actually work. Um, uh, but uh, I seem to have a really, really good um, uh, and maybe even helpful question to ask you, which is that um, throughout your you know, in, in life and in, in, in the world of science, but also as a person on the planet, like what are the main lessons that you've learned 
or like you know the main points that you've taken either from your professional life or just from your you know this process of individuation as you would say that you're in that you're evolving as a human and going through different stages of life um, so throughout this entire, uh, you know, taking uh, in knowledge and in creating things and then, you know, also constantly being kind of the face for NASA and Planet Labs, what, what are the, you know, main um, takeaways that you've taken or, or lessons? There's quite a few. One would be follow your heart. Another would be fear is the thing you have to deal with, um, at least in my life. I have found is that it is fear which held me back. And it's one thing to have an open mind. It's another thing to have um, a mind that is and life that is open and enough to confront your fear and move past it. So I think that most of what is negative and destructive in our world comes from fear. So really, it would make a very good sense to me to actually study that and for people to learn, hmm, interestingly enough, ideally at a young age, how to um, you know, confront, overcome, manage their fears because so much of, of what causes all these problems we have disability and toxicity and corruption is based on fear so we need to we need to uh, stop being ruled by fear and start being ruled by love. Yeah. That's kind of the basics. <laughs> no, but it is, it is very true to, of course, the, the things that you've said to follow your heart and everything. It makes all the sense to take, out, take up this advice because it makes all the sense that the thing that you would desire the most or the thing that you're most infatuated with, and even in terms of thinking, is what you would excel at to, to a certain extent. Um, also, I was like thinking of your point about intuition earlier, and now fear, and and it seems to me, you know, just like connecting and thinking about these two things uh, on their own. It seems like they do have a weird connection in the sense that it seems that sometimes uncertainty leads to certainty in the sense that intuitive aspects of human beings of, oh, maybe this might be or might not be. Or, or this, um, you know, aspect of fear that you talked about. Even fear has this fight or flight response mode in humans. So even that has this, you know, this weird element of, you know, maybe or may not be when when you first are, you know, kind of shown to the fear itself, which would be, you know, kind of 
this emergence of the real in front of the human uh, in terms of uh, fearful um, uh, response. And so, you know, when this fear stigma would appear, there's, you know, there's some sort of sense modality there that there's something fearful approaching. So there's again intuition there. So it seems as if you know that sometimes certainty, uncertainty, or or dwelling in the spirit of uncertainty leads to certainty. And I also seem to have exhausted most of your lectures on immunology. Ah, ah. Yeah, other other COVID-related uh, topics. Um, and oh, there wow. Because um, uh, I I don't like I had not known or seen you know immunology from you know those T receptor cells and 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 those cool terminologies it was very interesting to exhaust those and I was thinking because you did so much you know research about COVID nineteen and how the pandemic uh, uh, happened maybe because of Planet Labs create uh, uh, making more data or analytic focus based company it seems uh, uh, so like what what, what uh, how was your COVID pandemic like in in terms of just you know your subjective being like were you also just inside the home in lockdown worried sick as other humans or were you you know constantly creating or did did it have some sort of a unique element uh, for you that stood out as an experience like so many of us I perhaps have a little bit of are we now in May, late May of 2021, I am about as contrarian as you can find topics related to COVID. I was fortunate enough to video you may have seen, I suspect, from well over a year ago called Potential Upsides of COVID-19, uh, where some of these contrarian opinions first came out in perhaps a positive way because there's potential upside. You know, I've, to a large extent, been disappointed in the world's response. Not, not disappointed in every way, in many ways. Uh, you know, I I am fortunate. Like I'm in a semi-rural, well-off portion of the United States. Healthy, I did fine. But so what? Yeah, that's that's all subject for a whole other podcast. Let's just say that if we collectively wanted to, we could learn a lot from our response as a society, as individual governments. We could learn a lot from COVID if we choose to. I suspect many of us, not you and I, but I, I suspect that we will um, move on and kind of forget about it, and become a thing of the past. And unfortunately, I'm not too optimistic about us learning a lot of lessons from it, but we could. Um, it's a lot of 
there still are a lot of potential upsides. It's an interesting situation. There are a lot of potential amazing upsides to all sorts of things. COVID, satellite imaging, consciousness studies and things like that that we've alluded to. It's, it's almost like we have an embarrassment of riches. We have all these things that we could just, they're totally within our grasp to take and examine and understand, learn from and level up our society as a whole. We seem to be, we're not that good at that. It's like, it's all there. We keep fumbling it, but it's all there and it will continue to be there. I mean, look at the situation where you are, right? Rockets flying out of the sky, people hating each other. It's like, this is just stupid, right? It is so within our grasp to turn the corner at any time. Will we? No, it's going to be slow and frustrating and fraught with all kinds of disappointment. But somehow, it is always there within our grasp. It's I, bittersweet. It's very true what you're saying because uh, it kind of reminds me of this, you know, uh, um, book by Albert Camus, who is an existentialist, about uh, the myth of Sisyphus, where he covers this aspect of Greek mythology where um, Sisyphus was being cursed by Zeus to go to hell uh, and, and serve the entirety of his existence uh, in uh, hell, uh, you know, rolling a stone up the mountain, you know, under Hades' roof. And so, uh, you know, it kind of, you know, signifies how uh, we are always doing the same thing, you know, every morning. I understand that. And perhaps I understand how these existentialists could have come to this conclusion, but I actually, for some reason, maybe because I was wired this way, maybe because I've lived a privileged life, maybe because of just randomness, I have kind of the opposite approach to coming. See, I think, this, I never thought about this until now. Thank you for bringing this up. I think it's it's another there's another way of looking at that whole mythos. He gets to try again and again and again. Like he can eventually push the rock up to the goal. Like he's always going to get another chance. And that's how I see our situation. Through the grace of God or through the loving nature of the universal life force, we always have it within our grasp to make the world that we wish to make. We always have it within our grasp. It will always be available to us to do the right thing. We just have to do it. It's like, you know, we, we're always gonna get to try to push the rock up again. In a way, like Camus thought this was a horrible thing, 
that, you know, he had to do this over and over again. And I'm like, well, what's the alternative? Like game over? You don't ever even get to push the rock anymore? No. So I've got sort of an optimistic view of Sisyphus. And I just thought of that right now, but thanks. No, but it is very interesting that there is an, you know, optimistic side to this whole myth, because essentially what uh, it seemed to convey was that we uh, forget about the mundane aspects of life every day. And so whenever, let's say, a pandemic happens in, in 30 years or so, just, you know, by sketching, uh, sketching out how um, pandemics have happened throughout history, you know, in 30, 40 years, there seems to be this, um, you know, this pandemic that happens that kind of shakes the way civilization works. And that's when we realize that there's an effort that goes into walking, eating, breathing, uh, experiencing reality that we tend to avoid most of the times. Um, and so uh, what it seemed to, you know, this uh, myth of Sisyphus uh, kind of seems to convey in a pandemic setting is that we tend to forget the mundane. But also, as you said, you know, kind of points us out to and has always pointed us out to maybe we've always been, uh, you know, kind of skeptical or non-observant towards this, that we always have the opportunity to take that one step ahead. Um, and which is very, very interesting and, and definitely a very legitimate point to make, to have this optimistic viewpoint within this existentialist and um, absurdist uh, perception of the world. Um, so that is definitely very interesting. I feel like uh, um, you maybe prescribe more to the optimistic philosophies of the world. I'm fortunate, I guess, that I am wired that way. And that's how I see things so far, you know, have my ups and downs, of course, but I've had some very interesting experiences. Here's a, this is a bit of a tangent, but I just like to point this out. I remember once I was working with a fellow in a research laboratory and every day we worked together and we did work on the same stuff. We actually lived like across the street from each other and worked at this lab that was right there. And had meetings with the same people every day. And you know, we probably ate the same meals for a while. And and we had a meeting one day with a guy, with a team actually who had come to visit us to talk about their work. After, after the meeting, they left. My friend and I were calling him and talking about it. And he and I said, oh, that was an amazing meeting. That was fantastic. It was so good to find out what they're doing and collaborate. And he was like, oh, no, that was a terrible meeting. It's bad news for us. Right then I realized something. He and I had been living the same path and doing the same things and working together side by side. Everything had been identical. And we went to the same meeting, and we talked to the same people, and we heard the same things. And I came away thinking it was great, positive, and I was optimistic. He came away thinking. It was dark and dismal. That was when I realized that, like, it doesn't actually matter that much what happens. Objectively, 
what matters is how your mind is and how you interpret it and what you decide to do. And this is sort of related to what I was talking to you about a moment ago. Like every day we are presented with the opportunity to make a better world. It's ours to take it, take the opportunity or turn away and reject the opportunity. That day with my friend, we were presented with the same stuff. I decided it was a great thing. He decided it was a terrible thing. It's the same thing we were presented with. Anyway, I don't know if this makes much sense. It's kind of late here in California, but um, yeah. <laughs> what do you think? Does it make sense? Yes, it does, because it seems to say that the way of uh, your outlook is what actually constructs your own philosophy of the world. Because if, if uh, let's say an objective event X is happening and you, sub, uh, you know, subjectively have two different responses to it, one being pessimistic or one being optimistic, you know, it, has, it drastically changes uh, the way you form or, or conceptualize your own ideas about the world, hence your own philosophy. So it makes all the sense that you would say that it is the, you know, the, the way you look at that, you know, there's two people going at it from two different directions where it changes the entire essence of the experience. The, when we look at it from the outlook perspective, the, 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 the method opted to look at a particular experience. Um, but it has been lovely talking to you. I know it's, it's very late on your side. Uh, so- Is there any last uh, point you wish to uh, engage upon? There's uh, multiple points and multiple questions. I'm trying to restrain myself, but uh, no. Oh. I'll let you continue. Okay, well, look, um, perhaps we should um, close down the recording and then do some last minute housekeeping. <laughs>